we, we begin our Sunday school with prayer, and one of the things we do is pray for the diaspora, the, the saints, the scattered saints around the world. And I got yet another email this last week, and this is from someone from Australia that specifically asked us to pray for her and her family because they're losing their church and they don't really have any alternatives. They're losing the church to the seeker movement, and so they've been robbed of, of the means of grace. They're robbed of, of, of the Bible and the gospel because now the church is set out to entertain people rather than to proclaim the truth. And so th- th- we've heard that story dozens and dozens of times, but we do want to include these people in our prayers because they've asked us to pray for them. So let's do so. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather and hearing from so many who have no such opportunity, we have to realize how blessed and privileged we are to know people who love you, who are hungry for the truth, who will pray for us, who will uh, share in fellowship around your word and around uh, the Lord's Supper. And our hearts and prayers go out to those who are scattered abroad who have been robbed of fellowship because of the trends in the church. And Lord, we pray that they would also uh, be able to partake, even from afar, in the uh, uh, pure word of God that they may grow thereby. And we pray also today, as we are preparing for communion, that our hearts would be attuned to you and that we'd be remembering what a price you paid for our salvation as you died for our sins. And we ask you for wisdom and understanding as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, today, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4. We're on a the theme of groaning here. Verse 2 says, in, he talks about a, uh, being in this earthly tent. So, uh, verse 2 said, Before in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as having put it on, we will not be found naked. And then verse 4, where we start today, For, indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that this mortal will be swallowed up by life. Um, the term groan, as we saw last week, is also found in Romans 8, a section that we read last week. And it talks about the groaning that is characteristic of this present age. And it's particular, this is particularly true for the Christian. Not that everyone doesn't suffer some afflictions because of living in a fallen world, but the Christian groans in a particular way, according to Romans, because of our Christian hope. Uh, We know this isn't all there is. And we know how bad sin really is. And the sinfulness of the world we live in causes us uh, distress in a greater way than it would if we weren't Christians. And do you understand why? Uh, For example, in 2 Peter Peter chapter 2, it talks about Lot's uh, soul was vexed day by day as he beheld the sensual conduct or the, the unprincipled conduct of sensual men. I think I'm quoting that correctly. Yeah, 2 Peter 2. So when you're a sinner like everybody else, 
you may dislike the fact that life isn't so great, but on the other hand, you're not groaning because you can't stand sin, because you don't have the Holy Spirit, and so you don't have any, uh, you don't really sense how bad it really is. And when you're converted, then you're struggling against uh, the flesh and the devil and sin, and therefore it's more of a battle. So I think that there's a special way that the Christian grows. And it says the Holy Spirit prays within us in groanings, using the same word in the Greek, that cannot be uttered. So it's the same idea here. So this is groaning that is particularly characteristic of being in this earthly vessel, the bodies that we have. And here it's called a tent in this case. Um, I, uh, being burdened here means being weighed down with either affliction or anxiety. Being weighed down either with affliction or anxiety. And uh, we talked about this last week. Um, but it isn't exactly the idea of longing to die. I don't know that that's what Paul's teaching here, and I have some citations from some scholars along that line, but what it's a longing for is the perfected state. It's longing to be like Jesus. It's longing to be able to see Him whom we, in whom we believe, but have not seen. It's longing to be done with sin, our own and all of that around us. Okay? And because uh, this, period, this present life, uh, let me try to explain as best I can. One of the things that's burdensome about this present life that has to do with sin is the fact that while we're here in these tents, we have desires that aren't right. Okay? We have covetousness and desires for things that would not be right to fulfill or to do. Uh, whether it's greed for more money or lust for after the flesh or whatever it might be. What will be different about our glorified state is that in that perfected state there will be no such thing as an unrighteous desire. Okay? And so uh, if there's no such thing as an unfulfilled desire that can't be fulfilled without sinning, there's no such thing as temptation. Right? And so if there's no, no desire that's unrighteous and no temptation, then everything we do is glorifying to God. By, by whatever it might be, whatever it's like, which we don't know, it'll all be glorifying to God, and there won't even be a temptation to sin. So that is going to be a huge change. Uh, and, and the fact it's not like that is why we're burdened and groaning now. No, think... That little green button's got to go on there. Okay. Okay. You hear me? Yeah. I was just thinking that what right now we live in a world where God tolerates sin. So even though we're Christians and there's Christians in this world, the the sin that's around us and the sin that's in us, but it's something that we we exist in. But there is coming a time that God won't tolerate sin anymore. All sinners will be bundled up and heaved into the lake of fire, and all that will be left will not be sinful. It will uh-huh. just be gone. That whole concept is. We live in a sinful world because God tolerates it because he's calling sinners. And if he judged all the sinners, there wouldn't be any sinners to call. That's true. And 
there, I can't remember who I was talking to about this. We were discussing common grace. It's an important theological concept, um, common grace. Oh, I know, it was Thursday night. One of, one of you uh, was asking me some questions after the Thursday night Bible study, and we were discussing the concept of common grace. Now, that's a phrase that I think probably Calvin first used. But what it is used to describe in theology is the fact that, uh, I know we were talking about the T in, in TULIP, and I'm pointing out why I don't teach TULIP, because most of the acrostics aren't what you want to say anyhow, including total depravity. Because the total depravity implies that every sinner is just as absolutely wicked as he could possibly be, without any human goodness or decency whatsoever. That's not the doctrine. That's not what's being taught. The real T should, if we're going to use acrostic, would be total inability. So what the sinner lacks is the ability to please God without a work of grace. But there is common grace. And we see that at work in the world. Common grace would be somebody that's a sinner in the sense of unredeemed, not serving God, not honoring God, not submitted to Jesus Christ, can be driving down a road, and somebody else's car plunges into an icy river, and the sinner gets out of his car, dives into the icy river, risks his life, and pulls the person out of there. Now, we would, um, in in, in the human way of seeing things, even though... Uh, you can't please God other than through the blood of Jesus, we would affirm that common grace still shows the residual imaging of God in all humans, right? And uh, the reason we believe the image of God exists in all humans is that's part of the reason we believe in the sanctity of life uh, and, and that we should save life rather than to kill it, even on Sabbath, as Jesus said, is that in... in um, Genesis 9, uh, in the Noah narrative, it says that the reason if man sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, is because man bears the image of God. Now, that was affirmed after the fall. And in James chapter 2 or 3, somebody can correct me if you find that. Remember where, where it tells us the foolishness of not being able to control our tongue? And that, and that with the tongue we bless God and curse man? But why does it say it's really bad to curse man? Yeah, because he's created in the image of God. And it doesn't say don't just curse. You can curse sinners, just don't curse Christians. It doesn't say that. That's not right. That This image bearing of God is true of all human beings. And so common grace is this. That God is tolerating sinners, and he has been for many millennia, and he's doing so according to the book of Second Peter in order to give time for repentance. Amen. Okay? And so during this time that God is allowing uh, time for repentance, all people on the face of the earth are enjoying the goodness of God. And they are able to do so even even if they hate God and blaspheme Him. And common grace, for example, would be the reason... uh, Rick's teaching uh, Sunday school, but he told me a story about... He was witnessing to an atheist who started cursing and blaspheming God, says, God's not doing anything to me. Okay? Literally, he saw that happen when he was out witnessing. 
where, where this guy curses and blasphemes God and says, see, if there was a God, why doesn't he strike me dead right now? <laughs> you know, when, you, when you see that, you want to run in case the lightning comes. <laughs> Get a few feet away. <laughs> and so the fact is, this is common grace. You, God will allow that person to go ahead and keep blaspheming all of his life, but he won't be able to in eternity. Um, uh, Keith and then Gretchen. Another manifestation of common grace is God's rule over this world going back to Genesis. He's given the rule of the world to sinful men right now. So even though we have leaders that are sinful, the government itself encourages people to drive the speed limit, prevents people from being as bad as they possibly could be, and we enjoy a society that's not as bad as it could be because of the rule of law that yeah. God has instituted, and he's put in even sinful leaders yeah. that we can enjoy a life that isn't as bad as it could be. Exactly. If, if somebody wasn't arresting the murderers, things would be worse than they are. And so we're blessed to have a system of civil government. And in one reading of uh, Thessalonians, we've always had a, a, a struggle to decide who the restrainer is. And when I was preaching through Thessalonians and reading all the different ideas about he who restrains will be restrained until he be taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. One of the ideas is that the restraint is the civil governments of the world. And once that is taken away, you'll have a one-world system under the man, the lawless one, and things will then be as really, really, really bad. I mean, as bad as you can imagine. You can read about Revelation. Yes. Okay, your reference uh, is found in uh, James chapter 3, verse 9, but I'm going to start out with 8. Yes. Okay, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. This is out of the New King James Version. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same, Going on to 10, out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not to be so. <laughs> Amen. That's why we say that if you can drive in rush hour and stay sanctified, you really have victory. <laughs> Dick, remember when we tried that for a week? <laughs> Dick and I made a little uh, pledge in Sunday school one time that we're going to drive a whole week and not, and, and not get angry while we're driving the car. When the week was up, Dick said, that's it, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> I, 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 I'm really righteous. I think I made it about two and a half weeks. <laughs> okay. Yes, Robert. I think there's an example of uh, common grace in um, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Okay. Um, starting in verse 43, it says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Very, very astute reading. That's exactly a, a, a good passage that teaches common grace. So to avoid extreme thinking, when we talk about the sinfulness of lost humanity, we're not saying every person is devoid of any image bearing of God or any common grace or any human decency. Uh, but, I mean, there's extreme cases where you see people that hardly have any of that. But we are saying everybody is lost in sin and are not going to be able to extract themselves from that condition 
without a work of grace. That's what we're seeing. Uh, Bill, did you have something? Uh, what does that mean in a practical situation uh, involving litigation? Uh, does that mean that uh, <clears throat> if your uh, sinful neighbor came by and set fire to your house, that you should just say, well, you know, uh, it's a, uh, a work of grace that, that uh, you know, I shouldn't do anything and therefore I'll just go on? Or should I lit- litigate against them? Well, and, and, and that's what Keith was talking about, civil government. We have civil government to deal with that, okay? And so we should appeal to the civil authorities to, to in, intervene uh, when, because that's part of how God restrains evil. So, yes, call the police. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, you don't retaliate because Jesus talks about that. And yeah, yeah, don't go back and burn the other guy's house down so they were even because then you get this situation of revenge and societies that, that don't rely on civil government but rely on situations of revenge will go on for centuries and never resolve it. And you see that in some tribal areas where they've been killing each other for centuries because instead of a civil government to litigate or, or mitigate or whatever, you just have, I'm going to get revenge and, and everybody loses. Yes, Chad. Uh, I was just going to say kind of uh, in response to what he was asking, I think a lot of it ends up being more you know, at points we're called to kind of deny ourselves of the self-right that we think we have, you know, to, to maybe to respond to somebody in a harsh way as opposed to just saying, all right, well, you know, that's kind of how they're going to respond. If they're going to attack my character or whatever, that's fine. But, you know, we got to let God work those things out and not necessarily try to uh, extract judgment on our own. Not on our own, but we do have the right to go to civil authorities. Well, go, uh, Ryan. I had a, I had a thing like that. Let me show you. When we were down in the other building, I had all kinds of confrontations with some really wicked people over the years. And some of them, I had my life threatened at least four times while we were down there. Um, and in one case in particular, Diane was with me. If you remember, I was. I mean, we were going to a high school the thing to honor the high school graduates. And, and all of a sudden, on the side of my truck, I hear this, boom! And here, I just was going around the corner, and this guy had come out and slammed his fist into my truck and actually put a dent in it. And then he wanted to start a fight with me. So I pulled over, and I said, what's your problem? And he goes, you turn that corner in front of me. Well, he had his back to me talking to somebody in there, and I just went around the corner. And he thought he had more rights than I did. So this guy was drunk, but he just wanted, he wanted to fight. He wanted me to fight him. And it was insulting me in front of my wife and uh, so on, just trying to stir me up into a fight. Well, this is when the fifth precinct uh, was right a half a block away. And I said, well, sir, if you feel like I violated some law or done something wrong, I'll walk down with you and we'll talk over with the police and you can tell them what I did. <laughs> okay, you're just drunk. You know? <laughs> so he, he's going to go... <laughs> He, the last thing he wanted to do was go talk to the police with me, but I just appealed to the civil authorities. You know, instead of fighting to see if he was right or I was right, I just said, well, let's just go talk to the authorities. Well, he wasn't going to do that. So he kept insulting me as I walked across over to the front steps of the church. And then he had gotten, in his drunken stupor, he had gotten a craving for pickled herring. So he'd gone and paid $7 for a little jar of pickled herring. And he threw it at me, broke it all over the front steps, and threatened to come back and kill me and, and left. 
But the way you stay out of those problems is if civil authorities are there sent by God for our good, right? And so uh, rather than being a brawler and a revenge seeker, just use the civil authorities. Paul did. He appealed to Rome. Yes, right. But don't ask Bob about skateboarders. That's a whole different story. (laughs) Yeah, that that I take into my own hands. (laughs) Skateboarders. Um, just to give some scriptural foundation to what we're talking about, the end of Romans uh, 12 and the beginnings of Romans 13 have both of these aspects right next to each other. The command at the end of Romans 12, do not take revenge. And immediately after that, and remember in the original text, there's no chapter break, is be subject to the governing authorities. So you have both of these aspects right next to one another in Paul's practical uh, discourse in Romans. Absolutely. We, uh, we, we talked about that on the radio. And that Romans 13 is there for a reason. It's that you don't have to take retaliation on your own enemies when you have civil authorities that have been set to keep the peace. Okay, so we were talking about being groaning and burdened in this world. And, and then I brought up the idea that there is sin all around us, but there's also some common grace, and which should warn us to be... Uh, it's going to get worse. When, whenever that restrainer is removed, it's going to be horrible because then the evil will be allowed to be however evil they want. And that will be called the Great Tribulation. It's when two born-agains go to court before the living God and you go before the lost judge. God said it would be better that you be cheated than make God look foolish before the lost judge because he's that, he's that important, his holiness, that you better you be cheated, one of you, be cheated than to dishonor God in the courtroom before the lost judge. That's a tough one. The one in Corinthians. Yeah, Bill, did you have a response to that? I, I typically, there's been a few cases where I wondered because uh, who's re- actually a Christian, where Christians have been seriously defrauded by church authorities, or if there's a criminal case. There was a case where somebody's asking about that where one of the church leaders had been involved with child molestation. I think that he should go in front of the judge. Uh, Bill, did you have a response? Uh, what comes to mind is the Civil War. Uh, both sides were praying to God for victory. Uh, there were a lot of Christians on both sides. Do you have any comment on that? Well, yeah. Uh, if you want me to comment on the Civil War? Uh, I'm... Uh, I'll, here's what I'll say about, about that period, because I read a history recently of that. And you're right, both sides believed that God was on their side, and both sides had uh, speeches that are called Jeremiads, which would be from the prophet Jeremiah, which is this loud hellfire and brimstone denunciation, denouncing somebody else. And uh, the book I read actually was reading editorials from the south and editorials from the north, and the North were depicting people in the South as just the most heinous, perverted sinners you can imagine. And the same was going on in the South. They were depicting the industrialists in New York City as heinous, abusive, perverted sinners. It's probably true that there was plenty of sin all around. But what was wrong was the idea that America is Israel or some sort of a theocracy and that um, we have some covenant status with God that all the other nations do not have. I think that is where a lot of this stuff comes from. The idea that America is either the new Israel or the one nation with a special covenant. Robert? Uh, 
And that idea has, has never really gone away. I even I was talking to somebody who was a, a radio person, and he said, oh, yeah, of course America has a covenant with God. I said, okay, when did God agree to it? Can we obligate God without him being one of the parties in the covenant? Okay, yes. I would just say that I think your question in relation to this verse is, we're groaning, and the Civil War was some man's idea how they could purify themselves before God and get rid of all this stuff so they could have what we're looking for forward to now. We're not going to get rid of all this sin. It's God's problem. We have a solution for sin called the blood of Christ, but as we live in this rotten world, with and without slavery, with and without whatever the problems happen to be, us going to war against the sin so we can purify our nation, so we can be holy before God is a misbegotten concept. Yeah. Yeah, the problem is the idea you're going to have heaven on earth. Uh, I had a quote here now. Let's go back to our verse. But, you know, ultimately, through all of this, just to close that topic, we still have providence. We still have God ruling over the nations and drawing out the boundaries. So where... Uh, you can, after the fact, you can judge what's good and evil, all right? And we would, after the fact, look and say owning slaves and abusing slaves is evil. But providence includes good and evil. So providentially, God draws the boundaries. And Keith, as you said before, there's, there's no boundary that wasn't determined by a war. Pretty, it's pretty rare that any boundary of the nation, of any nation in history, wasn't determined by a war at some time or another. So, does God approve of men killing each other? No. But he's still using even their own evil to draw out the boundaries of the nations. And so, providentially, here we are. We're one nation. And I guess we're thankful for that, aren't we? Yes. It's Matthew 5, 39, uh, 38 and 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Yeah, my comment is that's really difficult. <laughs> I think it shows me my need for the gospel. But it was certainly... Uh, suggests that Christians aren't supposed to set up a revenge-oriented way of living life. Yes. I would say that to the extent that we understand and express the gospel and it's living in our life, that's how we would act. I think that if we're acting out of selfishness and suing people out of selfishness, that's not an expression of the gospel and something that we would be proud of or say, this is a Christian act, I'm, I'm defending my rights. I might do that as a civil person. I might sue church leadership if they were molesting the children, not of my selfishness, but taking them to court to hold them and say, please, hold them accountable. I'm not somebody that thinks, oh, geez, you should never, you know, the tendency for me, it's like it's such a fine line between what I know I should fight against and kind of letting my pride get in the way and say, well, I don't deserve that. I should, you know, it's kind of knowing when to deny your personal rights. I think that if the gospel is living in my life to the extent that it would ultimately be, I wouldn't defend my personal rights. Unfortunately, I'm 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 one of those sinners that we read about. <laughs> okay. Well, let me let I need to get back us on this verse here. Um, 
It says here, we, so all that to be said that we long for the be- a better world. We long for righteousness. We long to see the Lord and to be like Him. We long for the sin to be gone out of our own life. And we long to not be living in a world where there's sin all around us. And the reason that is true is because the Holy Spirit is indwelling the Christian. Those who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit have a desire for holiness. All right? And so that's what we're lacking while we're here is complete holiness. We have imputed righteousness of Christ. We are saints. We are holy ones because of what Christ has done for us. But we're not perfected. So it says here, so uh, we are burdened, because not because we want to be unclothed, but clothed so that the mortal will be swallowed up by life. Same terminology that you find in 1 Corinthians 15, 54. Now the question is, what exactly is Paul talking about? And we, we mentioned this last week. And here is a Ralph Martin commentary says this. Now that Paul realizes that it is very possible he will experience death himself, he, re- he reveals his preference, his spiritual body is to be desired instead of having to enter the interim period of waiting. This has been the theme of 5, 2 through 4. But the hope of the resurrection is not lost as far as the dead are concerned. The hope of the Christians, whether alive or dead, remains unchanged. So ultimately the hope is the resurrection. So we are talking about this intermediary state that those who die before the parousia go to be with the Lord. All right? But they're still not complete because of the waiting for the resurrection. And so, and Ryan, I sent this to you. I don't know if you had a chance to look at it. But one of the scholars was saying that even in heaven for the departed, the dead in Christ, there's still an already not yet going on. The not yet would be the resurrection. Okay? And so we know from Thessalonians that uh, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and those that are alive will be caught up. Now, we would all like to, I think, if this is correct, Paul is wanting to be one of those, but history's gone on a couple thousand years since then. And it's, it's right that we should long to be alive when the Lord returns, to be caught up in the air. And it's not a defeatist attitude, as the dominionists say, that if you long for heaven, that you're, you're a defeated Christian. Have you, have you heard that before? Uh, and Paul was dealing with people in Corinth who had a very similar attitude. And they had uh, what we call an over-realized eschatology. They, they, the already was so important that not yet was... In fact, they, some of them even denied the resurrection. They, were, they, they didn't need any resurrection. They had so much spirituality now, and they had so much going for them now, who needs a resurrection? And Paul said that if we don't have the hope of the resurrection and we have hope in this life only, we are all men most to be pitied. Because the hope of the Christian is to be raised and to be like Jesus, the first fruits of those who were raised from the dead. And so that is really always front and center. But, but Paul wants us to know that if we do die before the parousia, we haven't lost hope. We, we still are going to be with the Lord. Okay? And Paul, in, both in Philippians and here in Corinthians, says that if he left, he'd be with the Lord. Which, uh, I got two uh, cross-references. Where's the mic at the moment? 
Okay, Robert, then you get the first one. 2 Peter 1.13. And then, Dale, if you can look up Isaiah 25.8. And then we'll move on to the next verse. 2 Peter 1.13. Yes, um, yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you. Okay. We were just looking for the fact he used the same terminology of calling this present body a tent. Paul calls it this present tent. Peter calls his body a tent. Why would they call the body a tent? It's that temporary dwelling. <laughs> and uh, it's a good thing it's temporary because uh, as the years goes on, there's more wrong with it all the time. <laughs> okay? And uh, the older you get, you start realizing, you know, it's probably not going to get better. <laughs> I mean, you can go to the gym and get a little bit better, and that's a good thing to do, but after a while, it doesn't get better. Yes? Okay. She, she pointed out that the, Paul, it was Paul's occupation to make tents. <laughs> yeah. So there's the idea in the Bible that we're sojourners and pilgrims. I think I have some more of those. Okay, Dale, the passage you have. Isaiah 25, 8. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So there's the terminology, swallow up death. Same terminology Paul uses uh, in Corinthians. Is the idea of swallowing up, right? It says here, the mortal will be swallowed up by life. So there, there's Old Testament terminology, and there's wiping tears from eyes. Where else do we read that? Revelation. Revelation. Yeah, in Revelation, it says he'll wipe the tears from all eyes. So the, the sorrows and, and things that, that characterize this life um, will be resolved when life, the mortal swallowed up and, and, and we have immortality and all tears will be wiped away. You know, over-realized eschatology creates problems wherever it exists. And um, the people will always be promising something that can't really be delivered. One of the, one of the issues that we've dealt with is... Uh, Ministries that are promising people that if they go through their process, when they're all done, they won't have any more sorrows. And they won't have any more pain. But is the, is the Bible ever promising us that we'll have no sorrows? Well, it does when he wipes all tears away. <laughs> but the only way to have no sorrows in this life is you'd have to be one of somebody that is really not human like that um, uh, science fiction, that Spock. Remember he has no... A guy in Star Trek? You... Well, we're going to die in 1.2 seconds, okay? <laughs> now, and that's just not the goal of the Christian, is to be a void of any kind of sorrow or uh, difficulty. Now, verse 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 5. Now, he who prepares, prepared us for this very purpose, which was also spoken of in verse 4, is God who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Now, in, in, in the, the verbs here, prepared and gave, are aorist participles. 
And that means that it was happened at a point of time in the past. And I would believe that it probably refers to our conversion. Because it was at our conversion when, when he gave us the Holy Spirit. And then he also, because we have the Holy Spirit, because we're redeemed, because our sins are forgiven, we're prepared. We're prepared for what? We're prepared to go see the Lord when we die. We're prepared for a resurrection unto glorious uh, conformity to the image of Christ. He prepared us for this very purpose. The purpose is ultimately the resurrection. The resurrection of the body. So, uh, the same Holy Spirit to, uh, about whom it says in Romans 8, prays within us through groanings that cannot be uttered, is also the Holy Spirit who has um, uh, been given to us as a pledge. Yes, uh, Gretchen. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. In the New King James Version, uh, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, in the footnote it says down payment or earnest. Yeah, down payment or earnest. Yes, that's the, that's the correct interpretation. It's a down payment or earnest. So, having received the Holy Spirit is uh, evidence that all the other promises are, are going to happen. Everything that God said shall come to pass. God will raise us from the dead. He will glorify us. He will remove all sin. He will remove all sorrow. He will remove uh, all, anything that keeps us from being conformed to the image of Christ. But in this glorified state, we'll still be finite humans. There's no merger into Christ or a loss of personal identity. There are false teachings that, that are out there that, that say that. That's why I point that out. I'm, I, they're not real prevalent, but there have been some uh, persons who, be, who taught that uh, this union with Christ means the loss of personal identity. And that's not the case because we read in Revelation that the, the saints are praising the Lamb for what He's done uh, in avenging their, their, the blood of the martyrs. So they obviously have an identity to praise God. And those other ideas would be somewhat pantheistic. So what if we lost our identity? If we were praising the Lord, and, and you know, that just brings to my mind a question of, that I've always had about why do people want to go to heaven so they can see their relatives and they see their pets and they see this and they see that? I want to go to heaven because I want to be with the Lord. And hopefully everybody else is with me. There's going to be pets in heaven? That's what Hank Hanagram said. I've heard somebody say that. I don't know how they know that. I, I, that reminds me. I've got to tell you what I did when I was a young man. When I wasn't even telling a story. Now, be kind to me, okay? I was a Bible college student. And when we were in Bible college, we were required to go to, it was Assemblies of God Bible College, so we had to go to Assemblies of God Church, and it was called our Christian Service Station. And the idea is that part of your education was to go serve, and then we had to fill out a report. What were we doing in this church that would be accounted as service? And so I was going to a small church, and the pastor was gracious enough. He probably shouldn't have done this because it says not a novice, and I was a novice, so he, he, he allowed me to teach a class on Sunday nights or something, or maybe it was a Sunday school, whatever. I was teaching this class, and, the, and one of the ladies says, when I, when I go to heaven, will I see my cat? Will there be cats in heaven? 
And I said immediately, well, I sure hope not. <laughs> and, so, and some people laughed, and she was like. <laughs> and the pastor took me aside later, and he says, you shouldn't have said that. <laughs> not being a cat lover. <laughs> I think a better answer would be, being how it's going to be perfect, whatever is there isn't going to annoy us. <laughs> okay? <laughs> but your point is well taken, Sam. The most important thing about heaven is going to be the Lord. Yeah. Revelation, it says in uh, chapter 19, verse 14, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon a white horse's clothed in fine linen, White and clean. And then on his would be Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Amen. Amen. <laughs> so the oh, the horses. Okay. <laughs> I guess I never thought of that. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> now... <laughs> We have, excuse me, some cross references. Uh, Michelle, if you could look up Romans 8:23, probably one we've talked about, but we can look at it again. And, and Pauline, 2 Corinthians 1:22, and Lincoln, Ephesians 1:13 and 14. And you told me your name, Kevin. Kevin. Do you want to read one? Yes. Ephesians 4:30. Okay, the first one is Romans 8:23. Okay, and not only this. But also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Wow. So there the groaning is tied to this waiting for the, the perfection of the redemption of our body, the resurrection. So that's, the, and the, see, the Holy Spirit's the down payment. So only those who have been converted and have the Holy Spirit would this down payment be true and would the groaning be true. Because if you don't have the Holy Spirit, there's no desiring for this future state because you have no clue what it is. It's, it's, it's darkness and hopelessness, uh, Robert. And there, I think there's a lot of false assurance and false... Uh, Ideas that, well, we're going to all go to a better place. Have you heard that? It's, it's really not true. Yes. I had to get up early this morning with my back, so I'm watching David Jeremiah. Okay. He's telling... Uh, Je- David Jeremiah. Yeah, he's preaching out of Second Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. Okay. He finds a third body in there. A third body? Yeah. We have an earthly body, and then when we die, we're groaning to be clothed, so God gives us another body before we get a resurrection body. Well, that's yet another opinion. <laughs> All right, so now that's three opinions we've heard on this. The first one was this fellow that I disagreed with who says the resurrection happens immediately when everybody dies, and that's it. But then he's ignoring 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians, so that doesn't make sense. But then the one that we've pointed out, is that there's an intermediary state and uh, that's still kind of an already not yet, but you're with the Lord. And then those, the dead in Christ, will rise then. But see, that seems like, doesn't that seem like conjecture to you, Roger? I don't see it. I don't see it in the text either. Okay. Um, Second Corinthians 122. Okay. 
Second Corinthians 1.22. Yep. Who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Okay, there's the same idea earlier in Second Corinthians that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee. And the sealing is another important idea in the New Testament. You find it in Ephesians as well. And the seal actually could have more than one purpose. One, one purpose of a seal, uh, which uh, depending on the case, it might be some letter. Or it's going to be uh, like a, a king or someone in authority. Would it, is there a signet ring they had that you'd press it? And then it, it wasn't uh, such that somebody couldn't break into it, but it was such that if they did, you could see, see there was tampering. Plus, it, it, it marked the authority of the one who did it. So if a Caesar seal on there, then you don't break into it because of what he's going to do to you. Right? So you stay out of here. This is Caesar's. So, in the, so it's a very precious promise then that if the Lord's put his seal on us, that it's not only a sign of authenticity, it's a sign that we're the Lord's and that he's going to be jealous over us and watch out for our well-being and guarantee our safe arrival. All right, so that's, that's a great, great passage. So then we have Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, probably the same thing, I think. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with the view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. Amen. Ryan preached on that earlier when he preached Ephesians. So again, it's a very, very strong statement of promise and of assurance and that the Lord is going to watch out over his own. And we, without any, uh, in fact, with, with great boldness, we teach the perseverance of the saints. All right. And um, that some people have railed against that doctrine on the grounds that if you don't, uh, jeopardize everybody's salvation. There's no way they'll serve God. In other words, the threat of losing your salvation is what's going to motivate you to holiness. But as a matter of fact, jeopardizing people's salvation is exactly what the Roman Catholic Church did for centuries, keeping people in despair and hopelessness and doubt and not knowing whether they could ever make it. And if you read the New Testament, you have to come to the conclusion that Christians, like we just read, Lincoln read, are sealed. They have the guarantee. They have the Holy Spirit. And he's going to deliver us to the Lord. Yeah, and, and we're going to, our salvation is secure in Christ. Now, then those who say, well, if you say that, then everybody's going to go out and be wicked sinners. Well, that totally discounts the work of grace that God is doing. Because we, we, we have the Holy Spirit also to sanctify us. And, and uh, God has plenty of means to deal with wayward Christians to bring them back. All right? So, and I wish I, I strictly would suggest not doing being a wayward Christian. <laughs> but there's church discipline and there's whatever the Lord has to do. Okay, now, um, Kevin, you had uh, Ephesians 4 and verse 30. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit who sealed you for the day of redemption. Okay, so there's another point. That's what we were just talking about. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit who sealed you. So he is, uh, we are, we have the God's seal on us. We have the down payment of the Holy Spirit. But if we go astray, we're grieving the Spirit. 
and we're told not to do that. Um, and so that, that would be something a Christian doesn't want to do, and if we do, God will do what he has to to bring us back. Um, so we will be delivered safely to the Father in the end. I'm going to read Barnett, who says this, The now-not-yet tension both in eschatology and anthropology is well represented by this commercial image for the Spirit. Eschatologically, Paul's reference to the Spirit as a deposit reminds us how emphatic he is that the time of God's favor, the day of salvation, has come. Nonetheless, that the Spirit is a deposit signals that the coming age has not yet physically arrived. Anthropologically, Paul's reference to the Holy Spirit as a deposit appeals to the Corinthians' experience of the Spirit as a radical, life-changing power for which, remarkably, no further elaboration is necessary. Nonetheless, it is incomplete, pointing forward to the infinitely greater experience of the Spirit to payment in full, not merely a deposit, with the onset of the end time. In the passage 414, 4.16, through 5 5 indicates that believers are in a double but related tension between one, existence in this crumbling age, and their expectation for the coming age ushered in by the universal resurrection, and two, the decay of the outer person in this age and the progressive growing renewal by the spirit deposit of the inner person that points to the coming age. That's a very good point, right? The outer person is decaying. And after a while, I mean, I don't know when that sinks in. Um, I think I was about probably like 38 or so when I I realized, you know, it probably isn't getting better. I mean, when you're young, uh, just the human body actually develops until 25 and then starts decaying. Okay? So from 25 on, now now don't you feel over the hill? Now now that you know that? Um, It's all downhill. But, but for the Christian, the good news is this. That which will be alive in eternity is being renewed. And the great thing about being a Christian is things are getting better. We are growing in the image of Christ. We are being sanctified. And God is at work. And so we have something that this deposit of the Holy Spirit is a guarantee that that process is going on. That's the anthropological part of it. And the eschatological part is that there's a guarantee that that, all of these things will happen. And we know that it will because of this seal of the Holy Spirit on on us and on the promises of God. So, um, yes, uh, Coralie? of another verse that caps what you just said in okay. Romans 8 about being sanctified and glorified. This, this yeah, Romans 8, 29, 30. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The justified ones are glorified. It's said in a uh, kind of the prophetic perfect there. Yes. Proleptic. It's proleptic, and Brian knows that now. <laughs> just remember the football game. As, yeah. as you study the Scriptures through the Old Testament especially, where it's repeatedly said the Spirit came upon them. It never could go in them. And now since, of course, since Christ died and the Spirit came to earth to dwell in us, praise the Lord. 
Yeah, it's, that's it's an interesting different. thing. I was thinking about that the other day. Oh, here, Robert. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I was thinking about that, and I don't know. The, the, there's got to be something uniquely happened at Pentecost that wasn't true before, right? Right? Because uh, if John, uh, where is that? John 14? Where, remember where he says that I'm going away and I'm going to send another comforter, paraclete? And then doesn't it say he's with you? And he will be in you? Is that correct? Yes. And so there's something uniquely that happens. And he said, tarry in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit. And, and at the end of Luke, before they, they uh, repentance for forgiveness of sins should be preached to all the nations, but not until they receive the Holy Spirit. But there were... Now, I've had people say that regeneration happened the same way in the Old Testament as the New, but... I don't know that that's that clear. There must have been a work of grace, because if there's believers, there's a work of grace. But I think there's still something uniquely that happens at Pentecost that was different. So I, I would stick with that. That's the best I can understand it. Anyhow, so we are here. He who prepared us. Did we read all our verses? Did you do yours, Kevin? Yeah. Okay. Um, so we have a down payment. We, we're prepared. We have the Holy Spirit. And then let me just read, just to introduce this, so you can be meditating on this for next week. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. It starts a new paragraph. Therefore, being, this is a a consequent, a, a conclusion. Therefore, being always of good courage, notice that it's also in verse 8, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight, We are of good courage, picking up that thought again. I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body to be home with the Lord. So that is to say that there's no soul sleep. Right? Have you heard that doctrine? Soul sleep? That once, that the soul sleep says that once you die, you just go into kind of a spiritual coma, I guess you'd have to say. And you will stay in that state until the resurrection and then come back to consciousness again as a person. But this passage here, they'd have to, those that would teach that would have to overcome some pretty clear statement here. And as also the one in Philippians 1 where Paul says that he longs to go be with the Lord. And then there's also the passage that we talked about several times in Luke 16 where Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. And according to Jesus, Lazarus and the rich man are portrayed as being conscious in the coming world and and having ideas and so on. So that would tell us that this isn't that just isn't a true doctrine. So we are in communion with the Lord now, but as pilgrims in a strange land that is still not our home. And Paul says elsewhere. Our citizenship is in heaven. Well, I want to start this one next week, but i got about two minutes, so anybody has a burning theological question, I can answer in two minutes. <laughs> if not, we will just... Uh, dis- oh, oh, yes, sir. Over here. Joe. There we go. This is a... This is on the, uh, we had about the law and order type thing before in the common grace. Uh, I was driving one morning in Bloomington, and they're notorious for uh, speed traps. And I saw them setting up one in a very uh, spot where it was uh, not very obvious. 
And so uh, on my return trip, I sent my speed control to 28 miles an hour, and I had a parade of about 12 cars. Now, was I obstructing justice or was I being a good Samaritan? <laughs> you, okay, you, I think you're being a good Samaritan, <laughs> keeping people from getting tickets. <laughs> okay, um, thank you, and today's Communion Sunday, and Ryan will be preaching from the book of Ephesians. Uh, help us with the chairs. Thank you. Yeah.